Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome to Thanks for the Knowledge, Fanbyte's weekly news show, rounding up the headlines in games and entertainment in one handy podcast. I'm your host, head of Fanbyte Media, John Warren, and we have a jam-packed show for you. Uh, In addition to a bunch of news, in addition to what's coming next week, I sat down to talk to Colin McGregor about all of the Battlefield 2042 he played over the past week. I also talked to Addy Robertson over at The Verge about NFTs, about blockchain, about NFT-based games and the future of the medium. It's a very interesting conversation. I learned a lot. I think you will too. But first, let's get to the top stories of the week. This week's top stories involve two big pieces of hardware that are getting delays. The first is Valve's uh, Steam Deck, the upcoming portable gaming PC that folks are getting their hands on in preview events. Uh, that is being delayed to February of 2022. If you recall, there are three SKUs of the Steam Deck, and if you ordered the most basic one, uh, you got a pre-order uh, confirmation that said it would be shipping in December, while the other SKUs would probably be shipping into 2022. Now, those folks that got the basic model uh, the day that they went on sale are now getting theirs in February of 2022. And this has everything to do with the component shortage that many other hardware manufacturers are being faced with right now during the pandemic. Uh, There are some details we're not super uh, clear on, like if the other two SKUs are also getting delayed into further into uh, 2022, but we're not sure of that. All we know is that the folks that were first in line to get this basic model of the Steam Deck, uh, they're going to be delayed by a couple months. Uh, Valve released a statement about it, so I'm going to read that to you now verbatim. Quote, the launch of Steam Deck will be delayed by two months. We're sorry about this. We did our best to work around the global supply chain issues, but due to material shortages, components are reaching our manufacturing facilities in time for us to meet our initial launch dates. Based on our updated build estimates, Steam Deck will start shipping February 2022. This will be the new start of the reservation queue you will keep your place in line but dates will shift back accordingly reservation date estimates will be updated shortly after this announcement again we're sorry we won't be able to make our original ship date we'll continue working to improve reservation dates based on the new timeline and we'll keep you updated as we go uh, if you pre-ordered any of the SKUs, keep your eye on your inbox because uh, it, I'm sure there will be some further updates into the winter about when to expect your Steam Deck. I am bummed that I will not be able to play a Fire Pro World in bed, but that's okay. Uh, good things comes to those who wait. Um, uh, also uh, getting a, a delay is the play date 
the very cool bright yellow uh, gaming device with a crank uh, that has a very cool like game model, you know, of getting like a bunch of games in a season. Um, I'm really excited about it. A bunch of folks here at fanbyte.com are also excited about it. Uh, it was supposed to launch this year. It's now rolling out in quote early 2022. There isn't a super hard uh, uh, date there. There are supply shortages here, but there was also a battery problem. They found a battery problem uh, with the uh, with the play date and wanted to replace them. Uh, and because of the supply shortage, uh, that is why things are being delayed. Um, so we we know that uh, we we have an updated list of timelines. So uh, the the first ten thousand units that's Group One that was going to be a late twenty twenty one. Now it's early twenty twenty two. Group Two was the the second ten thousand that's also shifting from late twenty twenty one to early twenty twenty two. Group Three is the third ten thousand. Uh, that's still going to be the second half of 2022. The fourth uh, 10,000 is also the second half of 2022. And now the uh, the fifth 10,000, group five, is going to be the late second half of 2022. Just like the Steam Deck, if you pre-ordered the play date, you should have an email in your inbox right now uh, telling you about the delay and uh, a bunch of details about season one. Uh, it's two games when you get it, and then uh, every... Uh, every uh, couple weeks after that, you'll get two more games. Uh, it's a nice model. Uh, it's it's a way for them to uh, release games in a steady drip, and that's how they'll do things going forward. Uh, but yeah, you won't get your play date until 2022 at the earliest. Uh, another bummer. Uh, it would have been nice to play that by the fireplace this holiday season. But that's okay. We won't have to wait that much longer. Nintendo President Shotaro Furukawa said this week in a financials meeting uh, that while he could not comment on uh, the future state of Nintendo hardware, he could uh, admit that the Switch is in the midpoint of its lifespan and that the, uh, the the company believes that the groundwork has been laid to do much more impressive things with the hardware in the later half of its life cycle. Uh, he was also quoted as saying, we're not able to comment about the next game system at this time and it's now the fifth year since the launch of Nintendo Switch and the total hardware sell-through has exceeded 90 million units. We recognize that the system is at the midpoint of its life cycle. The launch of Nintendo Switch OLED model has also been contributing to continued sales momentum, and we are now offering consumers three Nintendo Switch models to match their play styles and lifestyles, as well as a range of software. With this, we believe a foundation for growth has been laid that exceeds that what we previously considered to be a conventional hardware life cycle. With regards to the next game system, we are considering many, many different things but as far as the concept and launch timing are concerned there is nothing we can share at this time end quote uh that makes a lot of sense the fifth anniversary will be march of 2022 uh and there are a lot of really major games coming out for the console next year and the year after that um and so yeah but what they're implying here uh, in case you kind of lost it, is that they uh, they they believe that the Switch lifecycle might be longer than a traditional uh, game console life uh, life cycle. So you know, if you want to say six years is more or less a, a consistent marker for a console life si life cycle, uh, they are getting longer generally. And I think Xbox is primed to make theirs longer, and I think Nintendo is admitting that theirs is now longer. Um, who knows about PlayStation since they're kind of doing a different thing, but. 
yeah, if you're into life cycles of uh, pieces of hardware, uh, the Nintendo Switch uh, to Nintendo Switches seems to be getting longer uh, by the day, which I think is good news. Honestly, I think it's good that they will probably focus on making good software for this very good console uh, for a uh, for a long time. Hey, remember when Darby McDevitt, one of the writers on the Assassin's Creed game series, left Ubisoft back in March? Well, he's back already. Uh, After less than a year, uh, he has returned to the company and he gave this statement to VGC. uh, Quote, yes, I have returned to Ubisoft. As I pondered my career over the past year, I focused on my desire to explore new ideas and unknown frontiers. Much to my delight, this is reflected in my return to Ubisoft to work on Assassin's Creed. I'm excited to continue my journey stay tuned in quote uh he worked on black flag revelations discovery uh he was the narrative director for valhalla um and he probably is working on assassin's creed infinity uh which will have a uh emphasis on live service so if you liked his writing from valhalla uh then assassin's creed infinity uh may be more uh, uh than uh more of the same so yeah Jump Force, the Bandai Namco fighting game that crosses over a bunch of properties from the Shonen Jump anime franchises, uh, is being taken off of digital stores at the beginning of 2022 and being shut down completely by August 2022. It's a little bit of a surprise because the game actually sold pretty well, uh, but it wasn't a super good game, in my opinion. Uh, And also, it's a licensing nightmare, so it seems like it's reasonable for this to have a fairly short shelf life. Uh, But Bandai Namco will probably make another one of these, but this one in particular will be taken off the store on August 2022. So, yeah, if you're into this game, then you've you've got less than a year to play it. Uh, a uh, Pokemon uh, Brilliant Diamond and Shining, Shining Pearl are coming out on November 19th. And ahead of that, there will be a three gigabyte day one patch uh, that you have to install to play this game because there's a lot of stuff that apparently is not accessible to the player without this three gig day one patch. Um, that may not be a big deal, uh, but as Kenneth Shepard points out in, uh, in his piece over at fanbyte.com, uh, folks in rural areas, remember this. The patch is going to be available on the uh on november 11th so by the time you're listening to this it is available you should go and download the patch uh start it now so that uh by the time november 19th rolls around you'll be able to play it with no problems uh the playstation 5 is of course still facing a lot of supply issues uh, as we mentioned at the top uh so many other console manufacturers are facing the same issue uh and the shortage of playstation 5s uh are, are still a, a problem well into 2021 and will be into 2022 uh, a report from bloomberg um is uh, claiming that playstation 5 uh manufacturing is still falling way behind originally planned numbers uh, power management chips are among the uh, parts that are super scarce right now, and those will probably be in short supply well into next year. Um, But there's also something curious going on. An unnamed uh, Japanese publisher has also said that they are seeing a trend in purchasing uh, habits where folks that have the uh, option between a PlayStation and PC version of a game are buying the PC one with more frequency. 
which is interesting because PlayStation was such a uh, hardware first type manufacturer and publisher and company, and they're really stressing the importance of playing games on the PlayStation platform. They've put some of their first party games on PC to much success, and it seems like they're dipping their toe in a more uh, 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 diverse ecosystem of places to play Sony games, um, you know, like more like what Xbox is doing. You know, they're putting PC games, Xbox games that are kind of putting them in the same ecosystem with the cloud and all that stuff. And it seems to be working out for them. So who knows if PlayStation will go more into a, a platform agnostic place in the future. But right now, it seems like when there is an option, increasingly people are picking the PC version to go with, um, which is an interesting trend to look at. So we'll see what happens when God of War uh, comes to PC, if we see a lot of uh, additional sales uh, of a surprising uptick of sales uh, to see if that maybe uh, changes the way that Sony does more first party and maybe even third party rollout. And finally, uh, a big win for game preservation uh, this week, as we saw that the Tomorrow Children, a PlayStation 4 exclusive that was shut down by Sony back in 2017, the rights to that game have been sold back to the developer uh, of Q, uh, of uh, the Tomorrow Children called Q Games. Uh, they announced that they were actually putting the game back on the store, back online. And they will document the entire process in a newsletter called Postcards from the Void. If you want to know more about the creative director, Dylan Cuthbert, in this game, uh, you can read a really cool report that we did last year uh, from Jack Yarwood, who does just amazing work for us. Uh, that's a Jack Yarwood joint called Sony's The Tomorrow Children Was Ahead of Its Time. You can read that to get a sense of why it was a shame that this game was taken off the store. And now it's coming back. So uh, happy ending for game preservationists everywhere. Um, what is speaking of game preservation and the future of the medium, uh, I am very interested in NFTs and not from a, uh, admiration standpoint. I have a lot of biases against NFTs as you'll soon find out, but I don't know very much about them. So I wanted to sit down and talk with someone who knows a lot more about them than I do. And so please stay tuned for this excellent conversation with the Verges, Addie Robertson. This week, I had a dream, and I think it might have been a nightmare. My mother called me, and she said, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk in her accent for a second. She's from East Texas. Um, hey, John, what is an NFT, and why do I keep hearing about it? And I think I gave one of those like oral test answers where I said so many things. That somewhere in there was a coherent answer, but I wouldn't say I did well. And when I woke up from that dream, I said, okay, I actually don't understand this shit at all. So I've enlisted the help of Addie Robertson over at The Verge to help me dig through some of this in a better way than I've been understanding it. Hi, Addie. How are you? Hi, I'm good. <laughs> good. Um, I I I have biases about NFTs and blockchain and um 
and in crypto and i think they fall into two camps and one is like informed biases which i think most of this conversation is going to be about and then emotional biases where everyone that ever wants me to get into crypto is like the worst person i know um so i'm going to put that feeling outside of this conversation and try to just stick to like the facts but if if you could help me come up with a good definition of blockchain, why it takes a lot of energy, because I think that's a good foundation for explaining NFTs to someone like my mom who doesn't know what blockchain is at all. Yeah. So we're going to end up getting to this with the energy question, but there are kind of two answers. And the first is the way that NFTs work now. And the second is all of the different ways that you could imagine configuring NFTs in the future to make to fix the problems that people have with them now. Okay, that makes sense. I guess explain like how things work now with blockchain. So a blockchain, which Bitcoin is the one that people know best, although the one that a lot of NFTs use is called Ethereum. Mm-hmm. It's basically, it is a kind of distributed ledger. It's like a ledger of transactions where because the way that you encode that ledger is done with a lot of really complicated computations with computers around the world is supposed to be checkable from anywhere instead of being tied to a central entity that you have to trust. So it's sort of supposed to be this super decentralized with like Bitcoin currency system that's not dependent on governments or Visa or anyone. So when 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 you say that, that tells me, okay, this is libertarian paradise. There's no there's no regulation. There's no centralization. Like, uh, so how secure is this? I mean, I always hear that it is secure, but I don't know what that means necessarily. The thing that blockchain and again, we're going to talk about decentralized blockchains because blockchain is a word that doesn't actually have a really great unified definition. There are private <laughs> blockchains that actually like they're very good at tracking data, but they're not actually decentralized and you have Uh to trust the entity that works on them. But anyway, things like Bitcoin, the idea is that they're really good at coming up with signatures that you can't forge. So if you Mm -hmm. sort of metaphorically can match the key to a specific block, then it's really, really good at proving that that key is associated with that block. There are vulnerabilities that I think that you don't necessarily need to get into, but a lot of the things that are insecure about it tend to be human factor things. Mm -hmm. Like a massive amount of all Bitcoin is essentially lost because people forgot their keys, um, (laughs) which is a a form of insecurity or they locked it in a box and literally like lost the key to the box or lost the combination. Yeah. Um, And then there are individual scams. There are cases where you can put all your Bitcoin in a thing, but because you're sort of trusting it as this wallet, the company absconds with it. Um, But that's when you get to the sort of question around Bitcoin and around cryptocurrency and blockchains generally, which is that they're kind of founded on this premise that you t- that you're using tech to not trust anyone, but with things like <laughs> NFTs, especially, a lot of the system is built on social trust. Yeah, so let's get into NFTs then. So NFT stands for non fungible token, and I think most commonly, at least these days, we're talking about image files that would be these these non fungible tokens. But what can be an NFT? 
technically anything can be an NFT because what an NFT is, I mean, with, again, exceptions that we can get into, is kind of like ownership papers. It's Mm -hmm. like a token, as the name suggests, that stands in for a specific thing. Usually it's a digital file. Sometimes it can be like, you have the right to touch this tungsten cube once a year. Um, (laughs) It's really any kind of piece of data that you then end up writing to usually the Ethereum blockchain. Um, The Ethereum is another very popular cryptocurrency, but technically it could be any blockchain. Um, And then because of the things we just discussed, the kind of difficulty of forging the thing, the ability to match a specific entry on the blockchain with a key that you can hold, there's this sense that it you own this piece of the blockchain, that you have really clear rights to a specific entry, then that entry is the NFT. And that NFT is tied to, like you said, usually a picture. Yeah. And NFTs, I, I, I have have been around for longer than I think people have been aware, but the advent of them, kind of kind of why why did they blow up so much this year, do you feel like? So there was kind of a slow build. Um, a lot of there have been things that were that we would now I think call NFTs, but that earlier we would just call blockchain based weird art game projects like CryptoKitties, which was years ago. So NFTs as a cultural phenomenon, I think that a really common explanation is that the pandemic really reshuffled the economy, that suddenly a bunch (laughs) of people had a bunch of money that they couldn't put into going outside and they just looked for ways to spend this money. And one of those ways to spend it is NFTs. It's this virtual kind of manufactured scarcity virtual good. Another explanation is that it's a backlash against earlier sort of last wave of internet culture where Mm. a lot of emphasis was placed on the idea that things are free and remixable and there's no scarcity. Scarcity is a myth that we have moved past. And then people discovered there were problems with this. Um, A lot of artists got ripped off. It was very hard to make money. And so then NFTs come in and they're this new infrastructure that if you were lucky can net you absolutely exorbitant sums as an artist. Yeah, so art collection market has kind of emerged from from the NFTs that we've seen this year. Um if 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 I buy um Michelangelo's uh, last judgment um and I put it in my home, it the, the no one could come into my home and make a facsimile of that thing realistically and then say it's theirs. Um, but I can right click and save a JPEG whenever I want. And I've seen many people get very angry at the idea of kind of sharing uh, Twitter avatars that are NFTs just willy nilly. Um, I, I, I guess talk about the art collection market and kind of why I feel like it's okay. I guess I'll just say this. I feel crazy watching watching interactions around nfts online where it's so easy to uh create duplicates of these things that someone says that they own and then they say well you have to take this down because i own it it's making me feel a little crazy is this a viable market do you feel like or i'm like should i get used to this i guess i'm just feeling kind of insane watching this play out 
So I don't feel insane when I look at it from a things get auctioned at Christie's in the okay. fine art market perspective because sure. I already think of that market as being fundamentally insane. Like at <laughs> yeah, a certain I mean, point, there are rich people who would spend money just to put it in a pile and burn it. It yeah, seems totally true. reasonable to me that they would decide that there is this arbitrary <laughs> scarce good and sure. that it's really valuable to own. So that part, we'll like put it to the side a little bit. Just okay. assume there's like this alien planet. Yeah. The part you're talking about, which it tends to be more normal people in a sense, um, is, yeah, is there really any value to this thing for people who want to buy it for some kind of sense of mm-hmm. utility? Oh, and we're also, the art market is a great way to launder money, so we're going to not talk about <laughs> the fact that you can launder money with this stuff, um, <laughs> which you can totally do. But I think that the problem is that it's kind of hard to explain because it's kind of tautological. That mm-hmm. if you think blockchain is valuable, then NFTs are really valuable. And mm-hmm. if enough people think blockchain is really valuable, like the, enough people think NFTs are valuable, then they do become valuable. Like most money is in a sense made up and this is a yeah. new kind of money. And so if enough people build this consensus reality around it, then it's valuable. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Tax implications of NFTs. Like, I know that they are, we don't have to get too deep into this, but it's like, I, I this is a total anecdotal feeling, but I feel like crypto and NFTs uh, feel like this kind of libertarian wild west, but like NFTs are taxable if they're sold, right? I mean, we mentioned how easy it is to maybe launder money this way, but um, do you think that this is going to be a cash cow for the IRS, like for a long time? So the IRS and to some extent, a lot of other governments took a really long time to catch up with cryptocurrency right. in general. And so I think that any kind of situation around NFTs is maybe going to be a huge mess, especially because the transactions for NFTs are very, very clearly marked and very hard to forge, but they're not necessarily tied to your actual identity. Mm. So mm-hmm. there are all these questions around, could you just kind of get away with not reporting these things? <laughs> um, or could you artificially inflate their worth by like selling them between accounts and mm. then you sell them to someone else and that person buys them and they're the ones who have to pay taxes on them. It's weird and complicated. And yeah. a lot of, when you look at NFT games like Axie Infinity, a lot of them are not particularly good at helping people navigate this. Right. So it's a thing that doesn't feel like real money because it's online, but the IRS is going to, yes, at some point consider it real money. Okay. Yeah. So, th- so everyone that is just like running wild with this, it, it might be stuck with a big tax bill in the future, uh, just based on kind of differences, like profit, profit based. I mean, this is all be, this will all be basically, um, uh, capital gains, I guess, uh, from, from what I'm reading, um, which will be interesting to see if, uh, this continues. I mean, like you said, this will probably end up being just like, you know, uh, bizarrely rich people deciding on this stuff and the tax stuff may not matter that much to them because they're so good at dodging taxes anyway. Um, but okay. So, when people in my orbit say NFTs are a scam, why are they saying that? What do they mean? And do you feel like they're correct? Sometimes they mean that it's literally a scam because that does happen a lot. That yeah. despite the idea that this is supposed to be about artists getting paid, it's really easy to just take 
a JPEG from anywhere on the internet and <laughs> mint it as an NFT and sell it as your own thing. Right. Because there's not like the only way really to verify that someone is actually selling an NFT that belongs to them is going through these systems that are not part of the technical blockchain. So mm -hmm. sometimes there's actual scams like that, or there's situations where somebody promises a bunch of work alongside an NFT and doesn't deliver it. Um, and so those are in sort of a literal sense scams. But I think more generally, it goes back to when I mentioned that NFTs are kind of tautological, that they're kind of based on trying to manifest money, that if you're saying you own this thing, you don't really own it. You own a token that has value if everyone decides the token has value. Right. That, which again is really confusing because you often do not own things in the way that you think of owning them. Like NFTs sure. tend to not and to not transfer intellectual property rights. So yeah. there's a bunch of people who are like, there's going to be this decentralized Disney. It's going to be awesome. You buy this character and you own the character. You most times I've seen you do not own the character in the meaningful sense that would let you create some kind of crossover universe. You own some rights to the character, but they're complicated and they're, it's just, Intellectual property is a government-enforced temporary monopoly that is very, very complex. Mm -hmm. And NFTs are a social construct that is fairly simple and discrete. I mean, simple is a weird word, but they're very discrete little packages of things. Mm -hmm. Those two concepts don't necessarily overlap very well. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem like it. So I I think you you hit kind of on the. Uh, that you know you, you can get a, a Disney character and own it. And I want to talk about games for a second because this past week, it, Square Enix, EA, Ubisoft, a lot of different companies either gave earnings calls or statements that said uh, NFT-based games and blockchain-based games are the wave of the future. We're investing heavily in this. Um, it seemed like a fairly simple and obvious ploy to get uh forward thinking i guess I, I put forward thinking in big air quotes forward thinking investors to be excited about their their futures um we know that square enix is already working on an nft based game what does that mean like when 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 people say expect a new nft based game from square enix what does that mean in the the mechanical sense in a lot of cases it kind of doesn't mean necessarily anything because it doesn't seem clear that they have a plan. Um, yeah. But in the way that it tends to work now, an NFT-based game is... The biggest one, I think, at this point is called Axie Infinity, so we'll kind of talk about it through that lens, which sure. is in order to buy into the game, you have to own some kind of NFT asset that's basically an avatar. And you could own NFT-based items that are then in-game items. So it works a lot like the way that you're used to something like Fortnite working, where you own a skin, except that instead of being purely centralized in this game system, it's linked to this outside ledger of the cryptocurrency blockchain. Right. And so, again, this isn't totally always how it works because you could have internal blockchains. But the dream of NFT games is that you have in-game items or you have these things that you can buy, but there's an economy that exists external from the game itself. So if you have an auction house, 
the company that's making the game isn't running that auction house. There's this independent auction house that people can trade on. Mm-hmm. So when when I think about NFT games, I I and and I can, I think through a broader lens of the metaverse, which we. I could also probably run an entire episode on trying to explain that to my parents. But um, when I I think of things like such a cheesy example, but I guess it's the closest one to me of Ready Player One, where uh, I've got the DeLorean and I'm going to put it in this other thing. So NFT games and kind of the metaverse, it feels like go hand in hand to me. Is that kind of how other companies are seeing it, do you think? That's how a lot of companies and a lot of people see it. And it is both a thing that kind of logically makes sense and is a thing NFTs could do and fundamentally hilariously ridiculous because the thing that's (laughs) stopping you from taking a DeLorean from like Fortnite and putting that DeLorean in second life is Uh not that there's not a way to like prove that you own that DeLorean. You could just send a key the way that you would get like a steam or an HIO key and be like, Hey, you have keys to these two systems. No, the thing that's hard about it is that you have to make this actual in-game art asset Asset. that then works (laughs) in a way that makes sense for each of these games because the way that you interact with one game is not the way you interact with another, like Mm -hmm. making a digital item that works well in multiple worlds is really hard and requires coordination between systems yeah and owner the nft really only addresses the ownership part of that which is like a a useful part it's good it's helpful for sort of interchangeable economy but it's not really the key issue with building a super interoperable metaverse yeah i mean i think i think all these conversations are very funny to me because of the idea of like, okay, all these games will be interconnected and there will be this metaverse and you'll be able to take uh, Ezio de Auditore's uh, Assassin's Creed gear into uh, Kingdom Hearts 4 or whatever. It's like, I, I, I'm remembering even very recently Sony telling people that cross-play between Sony systems and Xbox systems was just not something that was possible instead of something that they didn't want to do because it didn't make sense to their business plan. So like, the idea that NFTs are just going to be easily transferable between all these different games um, seems to forget that it will have to jump through a billion hurdles, not to mention the ones that you just mentioned about, like, it's hard to create art assets. Um, I art. <laughs> I, I guess I'll I, like get your crystal ball out for me, Addy, and just like, is are, are we going to be talking about this in five years? I don't know if we're going to be calling it NFTs in five years. Okay. Because the thing that would be valuable is if there are actually practical use cases for this, that they become kind of an infrastructure piece mm-hmm. of the system. Like if you had a bunch of games that got together and said, we're going to make this independent marketplace where you can sell digital goods, you can make in-game items, make mods, and you can sell them for currency that is valuable independent of this game. I think we could have that and it wouldn't necessarily be an NFT in the way that we associate that now with like people selling a multi-million dollar collage. Mm-hmm. I th- think that the NFT art market also, it could totally survive because these things tend to just stick around. I don't know that we're going to have this particular kind of bubble that lasts Mm. that long. Okay. 
That makes sense. Um, I th- okay. You've you've actually very much helped me understand a lot of this stuff. Um, any parting thoughts on the the the, the developments we've seen over the past couple of weeks? This is maybe where I just have to confess my bias, which is that sure I please. try to be really I'm genuinely interested in the possibility of like technical use cases for this but so far practically what it seems like it points to is just the minute monetization of everything (laughs) that it's really just from an artistic level it's really sad to me the idea that the future of games is a game where i'm not suspending disbelief that i'm not playing in this other world i'm just having a job and it's just it's depressing to me. Like, it's just not a world. It might be a world that's the future. It's not a world that I really want to live in. God, big same. Uh, all right. We're going to leave it there. That that's a great parting shot. And I totally agree with you. Um, Addy Robertson, thank you so much for joining me and please, uh, go find Addy's writing at the verge. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, let's get you sorted for uh, for all of next week's big releases. Um, let's start with games first. Uh, Sherlock Holmes Chapter 1 is coming to PC, PS5, and Xbox Series X and S on November 16th. Elementary. Uh, Next Space Rebels is coming to PC and Xbox One on November 17th. Warhammer Age of Sigmar Tempest Fall is coming to VR, uh, PC VR, not PSVR, on November 17th. Guild of Dungeoneering Ultimate Edition is coming to PC on November 18th. Microsoft Flight Simulator Game of the Year Edition comes to PC and Xbox Series X on November 18th. And the DLCs with the Reno Air Races and the full collection, the expansion pack, and the full collection are coming to uh, PC and Xbox Series X the same day as well. Undungeon is coming to PC and Xbox One on November 18th. Battlefield 2042 comes to PC, PS5, PS4, Xbox Series X and S, and Xbox One on November 19th. Mobile Suit Gundam Battle Operation Code Fairy Volume 2 is uh, blasting its way onto PS5 and PS4 on November 19th. Nerf Legends looks like an interesting little first-person shooter. Uh, Uh, Coming to PC, PS5, PS4, Xbox Series X and X, S and X, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch on November 19th. And then finally, of course, the big one, Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl coming to Nintendo Switch on November 19th. Uh, And uh, as far as Game Pass goes, um, there are uh, games leaving this week uh, and they're leaving tomorrow. If you're listening to this on the 14th, the day it aired, uh, pay attention because there are a bunch of games leaving. I mentioned them last week. You have 24 hours, November November 15th. Uh, Go get these games if you don't want to lose access to them on Game Pass. River City Girls is a good one. Uh, the Gardens Between, Streets of Rogue, Star Renegades, Planet Coaster, and of course the big one, Final Fantasy VIII Remastered. Uh, that is a really underrated uh, Final Fantasy game. It's very good. I started replaying it this year. It's super good. I reviewed it for fanby.com. It's uh, an unsung hero of the Final Fantasy canon, so make sure you grab that before it goes away. Um in terms of streaming, not a ton, except you need to remember that uh, uh, Cowboy Bebop, the live action game, 
excuse me, the live action series is coming to Netflix on November 19th. So if you've been interested in that, want to see what the fuss is about. I have thought this show, frankly, has looked worse almost every time I've seen it. Although the last full length trailer that they released for this show, uh, I thought looked a little bit better. So I'm intrigued, uh, but it's based on an anime that you can see uh, in a few other places. You can uh, see, I think, every episode on Hulu uh, and it is wonderful. So if you like if you uh, if if you don't like what you see with uh, the Cowboy Bebop live action, uh, the anime is very, very good. And you should check it out. Uh, and yeah, you should. It doesn't matter. You should just check it out no matter who you are. Cowboy Bebop, the anime is is excellent viewing and I recommend it. I mentioned Battlefield 2042 a few minutes ago and someone who played a ton of it this past week um, in a three day uh, closed press event for reviewers is our own very is our own Colin McGregor. And uh, he was nice enough to sit down with me and tell me all about his experiences. One of the biggest releases of the year came out this past week, and it's Battlefield 2042. Uh, And uh, with it brings a lot of changes. They've done a lot of marketing that really emphasizes the chaos of the the style of play that that series is known for. And with me to discuss it uh, is our very own guides writer, Colin McGregor. Hi, Colin. Hello, John. How are you doing? I'm good. I... I want to start by saying when I played this game in the preview window a few weeks ago, I didn't like it. Yeah, that seems to be a sentiment I hear going around. I uh, was I wanted to like this game so bad because right. I had just played the Halo Infinite uh, trial sure. and loved it, loved the big battles, loved a bu- kind of the same vibes and thought, okay, well, Battlefield 2042 is going to give me this, but on a grander scale. And aside from kind of technical bugs and things like that, I I just never moment to moment had as good of a time for various reasons, which we can get into. But uh, now that you've played kind of the final build of the game, how is this? First of all, how has your week been? Because I know you've played a lot of this game <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, maybe maybe start with that. Like, how has that week been? Because it's been kind of a strange uh, way that they've like shown the press, uh, the finished product. So so a bit of insider baseball uh, for the listeners at home. I attended what's called a review event. So yeah. as opposed to just us getting a code in advance, which is the typical format, which is PR since it's a code, hopefully in a reasonable amount of time before the game's embargo releases. Uh, we play the game by ourselves. We generally like go through it at our own pace. We take our notes, do our review, whatever. Uh, review events are a little less common. Um, maybe a little bit more so now because of COVID. Um, yeah. Because we had in-person review events. Like I don't know if you remember, there was the uh, uh, the one for what was it? Uh, I was gonna say uh, it's Kojima's game. I, I don't. I oh, Death Stranding. No, 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 no. Be fan of pain for Metal Gear Solid fan of pain. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, So a review event is like typically they like fly people out to an area and then they like monitor people playing it. But because of COVID, this one was online and because Battlefield's an online game, uh, the review event was broken across three days um, and we got to play online. It was like me and like I want to say like two hundred, three hundred people probably. So there's like two or three servers going on at once. Um, 
first day was we play like traditional uh, Battlefield, or we were supposed to play traditional Battlefield uh, 2042. <laughs> uh, second day was us playing Hazard Zone, which is their like escape from Tarkov hunt showdown, like competitive esque kind of multiplayer mode that they want to like. They're like really pushing. And then uh, the third day uh, was Portal. Battlefield Portal, not Valve's Portal. Uh, we didn't just play uh, Portal 2, but that probably would have been much more enjoyable. <laughs> oh, uh, no. <laughs> we played uh, Battlefield Portal, which is like their custom creator. Yeah. Uh, and it allows you to like, fl- like I'll get into it a little bit, but... Um, sure. So I'll, the first day for, for Battlefield, so I played like, I don't know, 16, 17 hours of Battlefield across like, Three days, which is three a lot days. of battlefield. It's a lot of battlefield, yeah. Uh the first day was interesting. They decided to not only replicate the uh experience of being digital boots on the ground with battlefield, but what day launch day one launch is gonna be like. Uh we sat around for like three hours, the North American team, and did basically nothing because we couldn't log in. Uh that was very fun. But I've played I now that I've played every facet of this game. And uh, I'm very conflicted with where I stand on it. Okay. So I, I think I think there's some real, there's some really good ideas here. And, okay. Uh, and there's, but I think they're getting, starting to lose themselves in trying to innovate this game too much. Like they're like mm. Battlefield was at its best, like in Battlefield Four, Bad Company Two, uh, like 1943, like those. Those were like some of the best battlefields they've done, and they've been trying to reinvent the wheel and add new things since. And this is a very weird experience, John. It's it's because yeah. I love Battlefield. Battlefield's like in my bones. Like I sure. I put thousands of hours across like multiple Battlefield games throughout my like youth. And this, and I was very excited going into this. I I didn't actually have negative impressions on the uh, as negative impressions on the beta. I thought the beta was fun. Um, I thought the experience, uh, I thought like the kind of like levolution quotation marks or like extreme storm stuff is cool. Like having a tornado yeah. roll through. No, that stuff that's, was definitely cool. Yeah. That's very fun. Yeah. So I guess we'll break it down by day because that's probably the easiest. So the first, we'll talk sure. about like basic battlefield, like your conquest, yeah, ba- your basic battlefield or big battles, right? I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's large scale warfare with like a lot of different zones that you need to be occupying essentially. Yes. Um, and this is what was available in the beta. And and I felt I felt like in little flashes this was a lot of fun, but I also felt very I felt very overwhelmed, but not in an immersive way, if that sure. makes sense. Like I don't mind the idea of feeling overwhelmed like I'm in war or whatever, because I think that's kind of what they're going for. But I felt overwhelmed kind of mechanically. Um sure. but for you you like these large scale battles. You like what battlefield has done. How does the new game, uh, tackle this in, in some sort of new way? It's a, it's 128 players. So I believe it's, uh, 64, 64 each, each. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not a hundred percent. I know there are bots in this game. Cause we, we were getting like, the bots are very funny. They have very fake bot names. Uh, they're like Lieutenant, whatever, whatever. They're like Lieutenant John Warren. Like they're like, uh-huh. they're like that. They're, they're, they're very obvious, not people. Uh, and they're they're very like cannon fodder, even though they have like remarkably good aim. Uh, there are bots in this game. I'm not sure if the bots just kind of fill out the 128 players uh, until like like someone leaves, the bot takes over to like fill that 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 boot in. Uh, 
I'm not 100% sure how that works, but I know there are bots in the game, but it's 128 players. Uh, we played four... I played four maps. There are five. Uh, I didn't get a chance to play the fifth one, which is an Antarctic one. Uh, that one never came up in my server rotation. Um, the map... The maps themselves are really gorgeous. Like, they're very beautiful, and I'm not yeah. running it on like a, a... My computer is good. My computer is not like super-duper high-end yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it looked good on my computer. It looked great. Uh, performance-wise, I mean, it's a Battlefield game. It, 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 it's going to run the game really... It's going to run your system pretty hard. Uh, performance-wise, it was fine. Like I had some hitches here and there. I had some bugs. I know other people were reporting bugs. Uh my biggest uh, issue is the map was too big. And that may sound weird for 128 players, but the, the way they designed the maps, at least they explained it to us, is they they have areas called what they designed in the design stage called clusters, which are mm. areas on the map to focus players' objectives uh, and, like, push people to areas. So, like, there's a desert map, and, like, one cluster is, like, this big area of skyscrapers, like, these big, like, Dubai-style skyscrapers that are, like, just like neon in like the middle of a dust storm. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. There's zip lines connecting all the buildings. That was probably some of the most fun I had. On the on the other end, there's like a highway with like a stadium, some buildings, like some basic like buildings, and then there's like one that's just like a village. The problem is between that, there's really nothing. It's basically just sand and nothing. So if you if you <laughs> find yourself out in there, you're not really doing anything. You're running to these specific areas, but because the map is so big, and because the way they designed uh, conquest, which is like the the battlefield mode, which is if you don't know, it, you capture points. Whatever team has the most points starts like draining the other team's uh, uh, ticket count. Um, the way they designed it is like each section has multiple control points that they call sectors. If you control all of the sectors, you control that control point. So it's a little bit, it's it's like a weird extra hoop to jump through. Yeah. And I think they had to add uh, to complement the, the size of the map. But the problem that we were running into, and again, it, maybe it was just because like we're new at the game. Obviously, like we're just experiencing it. We want to see everything. Uh, sections of the map just got ignored. Like there, we like during the first half of the map, there was like good fighting over at the skyscraper area in this desert map, and then it it kind of like just I guess organically shifted towards the stadium when we realized that everyone realized at the same time that that area was uh, more or less unoccupied, and then like the whole skyscraper place became a de- became a a ghost town to the point where like my squad we realized that like we were we were we didn't have enough control points because we lost the we lost the stadium and the the skyscrapers but because the enemy team just like fucked off and just left the skyscrapers because nobody's there we literally just drove from one thing to another and you could have told me it was an abandoned map with like nobody in it and i would have been like yeah this that's probably true because we we went uncontested and took like four points so it's like the maps are cool and the the weather effects like the sandstorms rolling in the the way like panels on like this big like freighter boat will like shatter and fall off on the people like all of that's really cool but the maps are too damn big, and you just yeah. kind of feel aimlessly wandering through them. Yeah. And it's it, it's it's to the point where, like, I, I feel like these sections could have individually been Battlefield maps, and it would have been a lot better off as opposed to just trying to, like, make them artificially big for the sake of it, I suppose. There's, there's something also, and I don't know if this got kind of rectified in... Uh, the the review build versus what I played in the beta, but like 
the the maps were somehow you're right like both way too big but also when you die and you get to select a, an area to spawn in i often found that i was also spawning in within about 10 feet of an enemy sometimes like sure. maybe i would say maybe half the time i would get spawned in very close to someone who could immediately kill me again and like it so it made the maps feel both unbelievably large because it took forever to get from point A to point B um, with not much in between, but also bizarrely small because I'm like, y'all have all this room. How is, how am I getting algorithmically sorted that I'm spawning right next to someone? Like I, I found that to be one of the frustrating parts of the beta. And I don't know if like you have that frustration too, or if that just isn't happening as much now. Um, there were instances where I spawned. It was actually in Portal that I suffered these issues a lot more. Interesting. Okay. Than I did on the traditional one. Um, I think some of that can be just come down to like you're spawning in on your teammate, and sometimes you're like the the like spawning in on your teammate and your team. You can't spawn on your teammate in Battlefield if they're in combat, but if they're out of combat, you can spawn on them. And the window is pretty generous when you like decide to spawn in on them. So like they could like be rushing into a room with eight guys, but because they're not directly engaging them, it won't see that as combat. So you could like spawn in right as your buddy opens that door and everyone just shoots you. So mm, okay. it's definitely could be some of that, but like when it comes to like spawning on people, I ran into that way more on the third day uh, to the point of where it was actually becoming a frustrating experience. Uh, than the the first day, and then I was supposed to play Breakthrough that game, which is their other like big mode for that. But that was the uh, the window for which we were playing was when we had server issues, so we actually played that on the second day. But uh, Breakthrough uh, is like Rush for those who have played Battlefield before. It's essentially uh, one team is attacking, one team is defending. The attacking team has to try to control two points uh, that are being defend, and they have a set amount of attackers. So every time you die. Uh, you lose, like, a person on your attack on, like, a set part of that, like, pool of attackers. Uh, defenders have an endless amount of spawns, but their respawns seem to be uh, a little bit longer. Uh, defenders simply have to, like, obviously keep you at bay, but attackers, like, if they take both points, if they've c- captured and controlled both points, they will lock that zone in, and then you will move to the next zone. This is probably the better of the two ways to experience the maps, because it, it, it forces the action into a funnel. Like you're always okay. either your your momentum is always carrying in one specific direction, so it's less aimless. And I think this is the mode a lot of people will gravitate towards. It's probably the most fun I had with just regular Battlefield okay. uh, twenty forty two is is this specific mode. Conquest is like aimless, kind of directionless at times. But this, uh, I think, once you give uh, a little bit more focus, Battlefield can be fun, and it also allowed what they're doing, which is a little weird. Um, they're specialists to their, I believe they're called, they're specialists to shine, which are, I don't know why every game feels the need to have champions or like characters or like heroes or whatever you want to like quantify them as, but they're, they're effectively people with special abilities. Okay. Uh, instead of like traditionally battlefields had like an assault class, uh, a sniper class, an engineer and uh, a medic. And those medic, are the, yeah. those are like the three classes they're all tied to a specific weapon archetype or specific weapon archetypes. Uh, they have very specific roles. They can't you overlap. That's not the case this time around. So uh, this time around, there's like nine or ten specialists. There's ten at launch, uh, specialists at launch. 
each of them possess a like specific ability and like a passive ability. So one that I really liked was there was a hacker. Um, so what would happen is she would get shot and anybody who shot her would be immediately highlighted for you. So if like you ah, shot okay. me like as a sniper uh, from a distance, you, you would be highlighted as a big red outline on my HUD for like a few seconds. And that was like a, that's a good passive for like, if you're, if you're constantly trying to be aggressive, but her active ability is she presses the button and she like has wall hacks. So you like, she sends out like a pulse uh, like every five seconds for like 20 seconds that reveals people through a wall. Okay. Uh, which which obviously is a huge advantage in a game like that. Um, yeah. But the the catch is she can use any weapon. She can use basically any piece of equipment in the game that's not tied specifically to a specialist uh, by their abilities. So like, if I want to be that hacker with a sniper rifle and like a medical crate, I can do that. If I want to be uh, that specific specialist with a rocket launcher and anti tank mines or repair tool, I can do that. It it's it removes a lot of the the I don't want to say the team building aspect out of it, right. but it removes a lot of that like original core idea out of Battlefield. It kind of makes it an amalgamation of like Call of Duty and Rainbow Six Siege and like like just a dash of Apex Legends where like they're really trying to give these characters like personalities and like focuses. Mm-hmm. But I just on a big map, on a big conquest map, like it it rarely mattered in a fight. You, you right. know what I mean? Like if yeah. I'm like if I'm like wandering through a desert, like I might use my like I might use my ability once or twice before I get killed by some random dude like 800 meters out with a sniper rifle. Like yeah. it's, it's 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 a really bad way to showcase what they're capable of. Yeah, I mean, I think the time to kill is low enough that the abilities feel pretty useless i mean it's not like apex legends where like um you know you you can expect if you're a uh if you're a seasoned player you can expect to spend several minutes in almost every single apex game and and use your abilities and and things like that and that's very specific and i mean i think call of duty has kind of carved a niche that makes some of its abilities feel very unique but yeah, I, I also did not get the sense that a lot of the abilities in this game are very uh, powerful. Like, um, but I don't know. I mean, maybe that's not the vibe of right. Battlefield. I don't know. Um, what? How was the? How was the the third day with the custom matchmaking? Because that's something that they really tried to promote in the in one of the run up trailers to it. It was just like, what if you put. I don't know, a 25 World War II soldiers against one super modern soldier. Like, I, I'm curious about how that played out. So, my experience with Portal was very weird. Okay. So, what they showed us is, like, you go on a website. It's not, like, in-game where you build it, like, Forge and Halo or something like that. Uh-huh. You, you were building it online on a website. You go on the website... Um, there is there it's it's a it seems like a pretty easy system to use. I've messed around a little bit with it, but like it's a remarkably complex system. You can like adjust game states and player states and That's cool. uh it's 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 a lot more in depth than I think people realize. You can adjust maps to to make that very clear. You can't you're not map editing. You are mode editing only, but you're going pretty in depth with the mode and what the mode can do. And I think for people who like to really like get in the nuts and bolts of like 
I don't want to say like baby's first game design, but like it's a very much it's a tool. It's like Super Mario Maker. It's it's a tool that people can really like kind of latch onto and and really get creative with what they okay. come up with. And cool. I, I I have zero doubt in my mind that there are going to be some hilarious, ridiculous, fun modes. Yeah. That being said, uh, when we were at the event, the to showcase this groundbreaking uh, uh, mode uh, full of creativity, where you can have char- so how it works, you can have like it, it's broken up across four games: uh, Battlefield nineteen forty two, Battlefield Back Company two, Battlefield three, and Battlefield twenty forty two. There's like two or three maps per each battlefield, excluding twenty forty two, which is obviously the whole suite. Uh, each one has like basically like the greatest hits of their guns and their attachments. Uh, same character designs. All the maps have been up, uh, but like two those maps that have been included have been visually updated and addressed and balanced, and they look great. They play great. They're really they they bring back the nostalgia for old Battlefield fans. It's fantastic to to showcase this innovative mode where you can have like. 1942 shoulders fighting people from like the future or you can have like the bad company people with their like old with like their their now tech versus people from the future uh they had us play free-for-all deathmatch for 40 minutes uh just deathmatch just your plain okay. old uh everyone spawns in with a gun and they shoot each other and sure. they die and we respawn to whoever's eyes that's it that was the that was the big showcase they they started off with uh, we also had a mode called VIP, which has also been in like a countless uh, FPS games where one person's a VIP, other team has to kill them. Uh, they get points if they kill the VIP. Uh, so like, you know, that was a really, really unlike uh, poor showing of how to how to how to actually like build. Like, it's it's cool you can have those traditional game modes, but like, I don't know if showing everyone the uh, the most basic of basic uh, game modes that we've had since like GoldenEye. Uh, was the correct way to go about displaying this innovative technology that they have been pushing <laughs> for the better part of uh, the marketing of this game. But uh, then they decided to, I don't want to say get wild, because they didn't really get wild, but uh, the other mode they showed was like everybody spawns in with a rocket launcher, and to reload, you have to jump five times. So it gets that mechanically granular. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. So once you like once we jumped five times, the rocket automatically loaded into your gun. Uh, <laughs> you could also get it. You could also mechanically like 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 what I said. It's it's you can really get enough to bolts. Uh, it would only recognize the jumps to reload once you're out of ammo, which I found was really interesting. So you couldn't oh. like just be jumping around a stockpile with, like a thousand rockets, right? Which like yeah. That was cool. That was an interesting way to showcase it, but then they made us play 40 minutes of that specific mode instead of like just a showcase of like a bunch of weird things they made. I think, like I said, once people get into it, it's going to be really fun, but where I think a lot of people are going to land with this game is uh, we also got to play like 90 minutes of Battlefield 3, Battlefield Bad Company 2, and Battlefield 1942 in the, in the mode as if the game was just like remastered and released today, huh. which... Is really fun, John. Like that's cool. Bad Companies 2's gameplay, like playing old school Rush from like the early 2000s, hasn't aged a day. Still, some of the most fun I think I've had in an FPS. The yeah, squad that... I was with, like we were literally like foaming at the mouth to play more Bad Company 2. They 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 stopped our segment mid Bad Company 2, uh, and in the uh, the Battlefield <laughs> Discord lit up with people being like, "Why'd you stop it? No, we were still playing." Like it was the most positive it, response I've seen. They for... stopped it because they figured out they're like, "Oh shit, oh shit, they're having more fun with this." Turn it off, turn it off. People, I 
so we had a Discord for the thing, obviously, uh, yeah. to organize squads and stuff like that. But like through the most of it, I was watching the feedback and the general response, and they were generally lukewarm to negative outside of like the few streamers who were like hyping the shit out of this game for whatever reason. Um, it was generally like a very tepid response, uh, and I think you could see that in a lot of reviews, uh, re- uh, preview re- uh, reviews uh, in progress that are being released. Uh, to, to promote ours, a uh, fanbytes review will be out next week. Make sure to keep an eye out for that one. Uh, but like the second everybody got their hands on 1942 remastered and like Bad Company 2 remastered, Battlefield 3 remastered, it was like it lit up like people were uh, having Christmas. It was the funniest thing because people were way more having fun with this mode than anything in the new game. And I, I'm really curious what's going to happen when this releases and how many people are going to be playing the regular Battlefield versus, like, the old Battlefields? Because I think there's a huge audience of people wanting to play Bad Company 2 uh, Remastered, which, I don't know, I think it makes it an interesting idea that yeah. Battlefield 2042 might act as, like, a platform to just remaster that game. Yeah, And if that's yeah. the case, like, fuck yeah, I'm in. Like, if you're going to remaster old Battlefields, and just like release it on this tech and in this platform. It. Exactly. Right. I think that's a brilliant move. I think that's a great way to kind of like bring the whole thing together because like everyone has their favorite battlefield. And for whatever reason, some battlefields are still exist. Like Battlefield 4's servers are still doing really well. Battlefield yeah. Yeah, 1 yeah, yeah, servers yeah. still doing really well. Battlefield 5 obviously still doing well. Like I think if 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 Dice is creating a plan, I suspect they are based on specifically allowing us to just play the remasters instead of just like fool around with the tools that were right. uh, the objects in the environment that were there. I think they're going to use it as a way to push out uh, like just like, like their own master chief collection, but for battlefield, which would be, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do because I don't think anyone's going to really give that much of a shit about uh, 2042. Okay, that's interesting. So I think the question I want to leave you with, and like I, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but like let's think about what's happening between this past week and early December. We've got the new Call of Duty, which is one of the quietest releases of a Call of Duty game yeah. I can remember anecdotally. 100%. Uh, but it's a World War II game, and mm-hmm. you know. But but if you like the Call of Duty vibe, it looks like all that stuff is still there. You've got Halo Infinite dropping in the beginning of December, Let's go. which which <laughs> looks to me, to my hands, to my eyes, to my brain, it looks amazing. Um, uh, and then you've got Battlefield 2042. I I've got seventy dollars, and that's it. This this holiday season to buy. And FPS. Yeah. Why am I buying Battlefield 2042? You're buying it for hazard mode. Okay. Which is which sounds wild to say, but you're yeah. not buying Battlefield 2042 because you, unless you've like really been itching for a big modern experience, I honestly think a lot of people are going to gravitate towards this mode that we played on the second day. Interesting. Uh, so hazard yeah. mode is probably the best showcase of everything they're trying to do in one game. Uh, okay. one, all of their ideas. So hazard mode is, uh, it's like escape from Tarkov. So when you load in, like while you unlock weapons in the game, uh, there's a market in this one that you spend credits on, the money you earn. Uh, the objective of the, the game is squads of four drop in with one life. Uh, they, they obviously can get down like any battle royale and be picked sure. up, but it's not a, it's not a battle royale to be clear. 
Um, it's just an elimination mode, essentially. Everybody drops in, squads of four. You can only have one of each specialist on a team. Uh, your job is to locate these data drives uh, that fall from like satellites that are crashing in real time in the on the environment, which is very cool to see. You'll see like out in the distance, like streaks of fire, like just oh, come down cool. and like hit like buildings or like in the environment and drop these like uh, satellite pods. You go up to the satellite pod, you extract the disc, uh, and then you have two extraction times. So the first extraction time is pretty early in the game. Uh, the second one is very, very late in the game. If you miss that window, your entire team is dead. Uh, and you lose the drives you've captured. You can capture up to, like, I think it's like three drives per squad member. So that's like 12 drives. Um, every drive is worth money, obviously. Um, if you extract with the drive successfully, you earn money. Money can be used to purchase weapons, uh, upgrades, um, gear, uh, everything from like your favorite assault rifle to your preferred like rocket launcher or uh, even like some passive abilities like having armor. Uh, one of them that they talked up a lot that I did not use was like you get intel about where the satellites will land before they land. Ah, which is, okay. Which is very interesting. Uh, obviously, like a Tarkov game, uh, if you when you die, uh, you lose all the gear. Uh, you have to rebuy it, and I believe you have to buy it round to round anyway. So, like, if I bought a marksman rifle, uh, one game we go through, we set to complete the, the, we survive. I have to then rebuy the weapon. Um, but like attachments like that, if you've unlocked them in the base game or in Portal or in whatever you prefer, they'll still be there for you to use. So you don't have to like get attachments for the gun. Uh, there's there's no loot on the ground to drop like a battle royale. You're not like lo- spending forty minutes looting for armor. There's the only things you can really find are like the dog drones you can uh, find and call in. Uh, you can call in uh, like a vehicle, like a basic like jeep, like an armored jeep. You can call in uh, ammo. Uh, but where where this really kind of like struck me and 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 the people I was also playing with, which was very interesting because we all had about the same opinions until we played Hazards of the Battlefield. Not really that great. Uh, it's an amazing showcase of how their specialists are supposed to operate in these environments because you okay. can only have one of each, but the gunfights are very intimate. Like they're very intense and they're very intimate because you're not, you're there's you, I had it, no tanks, no like big choppers, no like sure. ridiculous. Like, this is very infantry based combat for the most part. Like you can get a car, but like it's mainly infantry based. And because of that, it's a really good showcase of like the guy that can drop, uh, a shield to like cover like he holds up like a riot shield and the thing's like impenetrable and like you can use that to push a building that you know the enemies are in or um, uh, the person that hacks through walls is a great way to like kind of like get intel before you make it a, a an engagement or a push um, and where things get even more interesting is like the data drives there's a, a an item that everybody gets for free uh, that you don't have to pay for that's a data drive locator it's like a binoculars or some shit like that you like you hold it up to your guy's eyes and you can see uh big white rings where all the data drives are and if the data drives are not moving uh that means no one's grabbed them if they're moving that means the team's obviously acquired them but you can still track that team you can mark those data drives on your map temporarily and you can like you'll you'll be alerted when you're marked but you can mark like a person carrying the drive so you can use it to set ambushes and you can use you have to kind of like psychologically understand that um if you're looking to like grab some drives, if you grab those drives and start moving, people are going to know that you suddenly have those drives. They're going to know that you're going to uh, – you're on the move. They're going to have general idea about where you're going. 
So you can either use drives to set up traps, uh, which my team once did. We uh, we were on a skyscraper and uh, we had a team. Uh, we had like two drives laying on the top of the skyscraper, and we knew the only way to get on that skyscraper were like these elevators. So what we did is we called every elevator up. Uh, so if the elevators ever like closed the doors and went down, we knew that a team was coming. And we just sat on top of the roof and we just like focused and attacked teams below us because they couldn't reach us. And then when the extraction helicopter came in, we grabbed the drives and we parachuted off to the extraction site and then we defended it until we had to leave. Like those moments are a great showcase of the maps. Like, cause you're not, you're all, the drives are spaced out enough that like even those like random open like deserts or like fields, they could have a drive land with like a bunch of NPC like bot soldiers defending it you have to kill. And it's a great way to kind of shepherd people from area to area. And it's probably the best showcase of the maps. The weather is really wild in that because like it's uh, the reason you're extracting is there's a superstorm. And so you'll have like a tornado just like plow through the map and just like kill teams because they're not paying attention. And it's. It's a fun mode that I'm really, I feel like if you can get a squad of four people that you play with regularly and have fun with, it's a mode you, a lot of Battlefield fans, I think, will enjoy. That That's being cool. said, to your question, you have 70 American dollars. <laughs> I think you still get Halo. I like, think I you still get Halo. I think huh? I haven't played enough Halo. Uh, obviously, I have not played the final, the final product of Halo, but... It's hard to sell Battlefield. I guess it really comes down to what you're looking for out of that. Yeah. If you're strictly buying 2042 for conquest mode and to to play in the big maps and with the new equipment, you're probably going to be a bit underwhelmed. Now, I don't know how progression works. I assume it's just you because they had everything unlocked for us. Uh, I assume it's just you earn experience and you unlock things. So I don't know the rate at which things drop for you. It could be really grindy or it could be really smooth. Yeah. I'm hoping it's the latter. Uh, I kind of wish they didn't lock the progression so we could get an idea for that. Yeah. Um, that, that happened to me when I reviewed Forza Horizon 4 uh, three years ago. They just like gave me everything unlocked. And I was like, wait, I have no idea what clip you actually get new cars or anything like that. <laughs> it's not helpful. I don't know why they do that. But it's like they should give you an option or something. It's Let bizarre. me tell you, as a guide writer, that sucks. Because now I know, I have, right? Now I, I, yeah. can't, I can't actually give you like a real concrete like you yeah. get this and I mean, this. I have I, to, I couldn't describe what the flow of the game was a yeah. lot of the time. I was like, well, I've got 60 cars already. I have no idea when you get new ones. It's weird. Um, yeah, that's kind of a weird thing that they do. Well, okay. So it sounds like the hazard mode is cool. Um, and and like I don't know if you're getting those intimate, tense gunfights with Call of Duty or Halo. So right. it's like I, I – I can see that being a reason to do it, but like the big scale battles, listen, they're not 64 against 64, but like the stuff that they were showing with halo was really cool with the big, with the big maps and stuff. So like, yeah, I don't know. I think that scratched an itch for me and I would probably suggest halo, but I have to say you've convinced me. Maybe I should try the hazard mode stuff. Um, I think if you, if you can play with friends and you kind of like, yeah, once you start like really getting a grasp on the abilities and the systems, it can be a really fun mode because it was that's cool of the of the base battlefield like experience, not including portal. It was probably the most fun I had was hazard mode and like good for them. Awesome. Like I know they they took a swing and a miss really hard 
with Firestorm, which was their yeah. be- which was their BR that literally nobody played a week after launch. Like that yeah, died. That was, that was a bummer. And yeah. I was I was very like my eyebrows kind of went way up when I'm like, we're trying it again. We're doing another wild we're doing mode. another one. And yep. like good for good for dice for for hitting this one and uh and really nailing what they needed to on this one. But I don't know, John. I'm just I wanna love Battlefield 2042. I desperate desperately wanna love Battlefield 2042. I, I love this series, but it, it's 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 very tepid right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot recommend. of I think it's a lot of fun in some places, and I think it needs a lot of work in some areas. I think it's it really a hundred percent comes down to what you want out of the battlefield experience. Like if you're yeah. going for big, like funny, chaotic battles, I honestly think Halo beats them. And okay. like that sounds weird because like it's Halo, but like I don't know, like you could do some dumb shit in Halo, and it's really fun. Yeah, and for sure. I don't think I think this is a good case of like the you don't need to like like the the whole like Battlefield is like the biggest multiplayer game. Like it has to be big. It's always big. Like I don't think that's what people want. Like ultimately, like you you we like big maps, but like there is a limit. Like this is the limit. We've reached the limit. We've hit the limit, and they need to go back. Yeah. Yeah, it 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 seems it seems like they need to retool a bit. Well, this has been good. I'm I'm sorry that things were not as smooth with the review event as they could have been, but it sounds like you did get a well-rounded idea of what this game is, and it's got some promise. But I uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like they need to work on work on some stuff. So, um, thanks again for playing that game for 18 hours in a week and, um, and talking to me about it. Thank you for paying me for playing the game <laughs> for 18 hours a week and talking You're about welcome. it. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Colin. Of course. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's episode. I want to thank both of my excellent guests, Colin McGregor and Addie Robertson, for hanging out and chatting with me. If you want to find all of Colin's excellent guides work, you can do so over at fanbyte.com and find him also on Twitter at BeguiledGamer. If you want to find all of Addie Robertson's excellent writing on tech and future, uh, she is a senior reporter over at The Verge. You should find her work over there. It's excellent. You can also find her on Twitter at The Dextriarchy. Uh, if you want to find uh, Paul, uh, my wonderful producer on Twitter, you can find him at Polymayo. Uh, and also, please listen to The Optional. It's an excellent podcast right here on the Fanbyte Network. Uh, he and Cam Brewster chop it up every week, and it's always a blast. Uh, yeah, uh, so please go do that. And leave a like and subscribe. And you know what? Leave a like and subscribe for this show as well. Uh, we work really hard on it. It's one of the, my... I'm very proud of putting it together every week. Uh, Paul and I uh, spend a lot of time and effort on it. it mean a lot if you give us a great review. You can find me at Floppy Adult on Twitter if you so uh, if you choose to do so, <laughs> uh, you can also find us at Fanbyte Media and all of our podcasts at podcastnet.work. Okay, that was a lot. Until next week, you're welcome. Mm-hmm.